whatever you believe is most powerful in your life will be what leads your life. Whatever you believe to be the most powerful thing, whatever is really in control, will be what kind of, that will make decisions for you in your life. Uh, there are other reasons for why children do this, but this is one reason why small children throw tantrums, because they want to be in control, and it's a power play, and they know if they're stubborn, that they're going to get what they want, unless they meet very stubborn parents who don't let them get what they want. Sometimes you give in. Also, your boss at work. I'm willing to bet you probably act differently when that boss is around. When she's there, you're probably a little bit different than when she's not there. Uh, just think of when you're a teenager with your parents. You act differently with your parents than with your peer group. And when you're a teenager and you're with your parents, they have all the power, they have all the money, they're, you know, they have the house. When you're with your peer group, they have all the power because they can say if you're cool or not or whatever the things you're worried about. Now, this can, that's not necessarily a bad thing. because it's just, That's just reality of what happens. That can be actually a good thing for the person in power to have control of your life if that thing in power it has your best interest at heart. That can be a really good thing. It can be a horrible thing if they don't. I mean, this is the big problem with systemic racism, right? There is a system that's set up that doesn't allow people of all backgrounds to thrive. And that powerful system can hold some people up and keep other people down. So the problem really isn't in power itself, which is maybe what we're prone to think of, especially as a culture. We think, oh, all, like, if you have a lot of power, you're automatically evil or bad or something. It's how you use that power. It's how you use that power that matters. Because the answer isn't just to remove power, especially if you're talking about people who've been marginalized, removing power keeps them even more marginalized. The answer is in the right use of power. So we all want people in charge who are benevolent, who are loving, who are generous, who are giving, who care more about you than they do about themselves, who will go out of their way to care for you, and who will work the best for us. We all want those kinds of people in charge. And in these nine verses that we have, we get a glimpse of God as our powerful king. So this week, like I said earlier, we're going to look at what it means to pray to a powerful king. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to pray for power ourselves. Uh, what, what we have here, because we're just jumping into this book, uh, this letter of Ephesians, Paul's writing to this church at Ephesus. And, I, and I, again, I think, as I've said maybe the past few weeks, these churches are a lot more like us than we're, we probably would initially imagine. This is like in a place we've never been to, probably, uh, and definitely a time we've never been to. But really, they're the same kind of people as us. And this church is really similar to ours. It's a young church plant. It's, not, it's planted in an area where people aren't super stoked to have Christians around all the time. Uh, and the people who make up this church are people who come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities, classes, even languages. And what I think we're going to see here, what I'm hoping that we'll all see here, is Paul is going to teach us that through Jesus... God is the powerful king that we all need. Through Jesus, God is a powerful king that we all need. And this is who we get to talk to as we pray. We get to actually talk to him. That's bonkers. So let's, let's, let's look at this. There are five points here. So we're going to jump through these really quickly. It's not going to be as slow as we've gone through before. Um, so the first one, uh, the first point that Paul gets to is he teaches us to give thanks for how God has worked through his church. And just maybe before we even get to verse 15, let's look, the context here really comes from verse 3 and the following verses. Uh, if you look at verse 3, uh, Paul says, Praise be to God, the Father of Jesus Christ. And he says, Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the context of the, uh, the people who God's talking to here are people who are already believers, people who are already um, have faith, who would, who would identify as Christians. So if you're a believer, what we're reading here, 
All this is your true self. This is you. Now, if you aren't yet a believer, this is like a small glimpse, a really small glimpse. This is like nine verses in a Bible that has lots of verses, a small glimpse of, one of, the, of some of the benefits of what it means to be a believer. So it might be kind of worth thinking about as we go through here. Now, for all of us, regardless of where you are with Jesus, what we're learning today is what it means to talk to God. That's what we're all learning today. Uh, and what it means to talk to God as the powerful king. If God is who he says he is, there are some implications. And when Paul, here, going back to verse 15 here, when Paul hears about the faith of this church, this young church plant, he gives thanks not to them first, but to God. He says, I give thanks to God for this. And then when Paul hears about how these people are loving other people in their church, they're doing community really well, he doesn't give thanks to them. I mean, he kind of does because he's writing to them. But he's saying he's giving thanks to God. In fact, when news came about their faith in God and love for others, Paul says he's been continually thanking God for them. Like an ongoing thing. He's always doing this. He hasn't stopped. And as we see each other, like literally the people here that we're looking at, we should first have a posture of thankfulness for each other expressed through prayer to God. Where does that, where does that thankfulness originate? It doesn't begin with us, but it originates from God in us. It pleases God to bestow his goodness in us. He loves it. He doesn't keep it all for himself. He gives it away like, insanely, generously. He loves for us to know him and experience his goodness. So the, for this reason, the first three words of verse 15 it looks back to all these previous verses that we definitely do not have any time to go through, but maybe just a quick little snippet in verse 6. Uh, Paul says that God has drawn us to him, to God, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. When we see each other, what we're doing, what we're doing, we're looking at the handiwork of God. Nothing less than that. We're looking at the handiwork of God himself. When we see each other, we're looking at his work. Nothing less than... God at work creating each one of us a unique piece of art that has unique kind of facets to it. And when we get that, we can easily be thankful for each other. Now that reality covers all over all the little petty differences we're going to have with each other. It also covers all over the big differences that we're going to have with each other. And we will. We have, we are, and we will. It's just what it means to be a family together. It means not everybody is like, you know, looking like the perfect photo op all the time. I don't think it doesn't take much to understand how this applies to us today, right? I don't have to be like, oh man, well, this is really difficult for us to understand, you know, 2,000 years ago. Let's figure out how it applies. It kind of readily applies. We totally get that. We really get that. And one thing, um, one tangible way we can do this is through the prayer cards, which I did not put out on the seats, but we can um, have some out later. Uh, just tangible ways to, a, a tangible thing for you to tangibly love other people, keeping this kind of at the ready and praying for people every day. Just three people every day. I mean, when you look at another person in church, or really anywhere, you are granted a glimpse into God's infinitely powerful love at work. There's an eternity in each one of us. Some of us understand that and are living it out. Some of us are yet to understand that and live it out. So if we spend a bit of time on that, for the three people that you're praying for, who either are already believers, who, who aren't yet I mean, ask the Spirit to give you the same kind of eyes that He has. The same kind of eyes that He has for them. Ask Him to give you those kind of eyes for the other person. You're going to love that person more, I guarantee it. And you're going to pray for them in more deeper ways. And you're going to be more joyful when you see them and more thankful for them. 
So Paul starts this whole prayer section in thankfulness. Then he moves on to asking. So these next four points is where Paul asks God uh, to work. If he's the king and you want something done, you should ask the king, right? I mean, he's the guy who has all the power and all the stuff. Like, why not ask him to do stuff? I mean, what's he doing with his life, right? What's he doing up there? Well, what he's doing is waiting for us to ask him things. So one thing um, Paul talks about is to ask God for wisdom and revelation. This is in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And these are like Paul's continual prayers, right? He's, keep, he's keeping this going. And he asks the Father to give him the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Not a sense of wisdom and revelation, but the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, if you have the NIV and probably other translations out there, it'll be a capital S for spirit. And you might have a little footnote, say, or lowercase s for spirit. I think rightfully the NIV is putting capital S there. This is the second person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. Because throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is often called the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's kind of what he does, what he helps us do. Uh, that's, what, that's kind of how he um, is, is defined. But remember also the context here. These are people who already have the Spirit because they're already believers. So they're already Christians, and Paul's at, which means they already have the Holy Spirit residing in them, and Paul's asking that the Father, that the Father might give them the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the, that's uh, a, a bit of our context. So when Paul writes in verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in Jesus, means you have the Holy Spirit. Now just to clarify a bit on what the Bible teaches about the Spirit, because there are different thoughts out there, and I think what we all need to be rooted is in what God has actually said. So here in Ephesians 1, because as we just kind of briefly touched on, as well as other places in the Bible, when you first believe, you're given the Holy Spirit. It's not like you believe, and then if you do really good things, then maybe the Holy Spirit might want to come upon you and you know, give. You have the Holy Spirit. It's part of what it means for Jesus, for Jesus to transform your heart. He takes up residence in your heart, which is a way of, say, your core personality. The most fundamental part of who you are is now changed by God himself because God is living there. Always. But there are times when believers are more filled with the Spirit than other times. And we see this happens a lot in Acts over and over and over again. Now, if you're a Christian also, you don't really need to be told that. You know that from personal experience. If you're a Christian, you know like, oh yeah, sometimes I'm really feeling it, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm really feeling it and nothing really happens. Sometimes I'm really feeling it and I knew it was given for that particular situation because I said something that I would have never even said or I don't even remember what I said, but it was really influential for that person. I don't know if you've had situations like that, but that's the Holy Spirit at work. That's what's, that's what's being called being filled with the Spirit. Uh, some, so sometimes you feel it, other times not so much. In the Bible, when the people are filled with the Spirit, what almost always happens next, not 100% of the time, but probably if I was to run the numbers, probably let's say like 90% of the time, it's so that other people will be filled with the Spirit. It's to do things you wouldn't normally do in, in the natural sense. It's a supernatural empowering to be able to speak the gospel or to serve people in ways that you wouldn't normally be able to do. So having the Spirit is a one-time thing, kind of as Paul talks about here, you have had him, you have had faith, but uh, being filled with the Spirit ebbs and flows. Now, there's more we can say about that and maybe have questions about that. If you do have questions, you can go to that site, even right now on your phone, and put a question forth 
Yeah, I, I don't get any personal information, so it's just the question that comes through in an email that doesn't come from any email address. And I'll talk about that towards the end of the service if you have questions or maybe comments you want to add to that. Um, but just to kind of maybe recap on that. So there is a one-time filling with the Spirit when the Spirit comes to live in you. And there's ongoing times of being filled with the Spirit, which is what we need to pray for, which is what often Paul prays for people, even as we're looking at here, that, we, that they would be filled with the Spirit. So here in our verse having the Spirit more active in the lives of believers, it leads to wisdom, it leads to revelation. Wisdom is how to live a good life, the know-how to live a meaningful life. Revelation is, is understanding the Bible, understanding who God is and what He's done in our lives. Our brains are not the problem in that, ultimately. I mean, it requires our brains, but ultimately the only way we can understand God's words is for God Himself to be active and bringing that understanding in our lives. Our brains might have a problem, but of course there's a deeper reason. That wisdom is more than an intellectual exercise on our part. It's a spiritual gift on his part. Wis- and same thing with revelation. Revelation is more than a mere kind of intellectual or, emotion- or emotional exercise. It's a spiritual gift on the part of God. And Paul is asking God to give these people more of the Holy Spirit, which means they will grow in wisdom and revelation. So Paul's asking God for the Holy Spirit to be at work. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And these are people who already have faith, who already have every spiritual blessing through Jesus. So Paul is asking God to give these people more of the Holy Spirit, which means they'll grow in wisdom and revelation. So when we feel overwhelmed, what we need is wisdom and revelation. The answer isn't in planning a holiday or going online and buying that thing. It's the Holy Spirit. And we feel exhausted in life. What we need is wisdom and revelation, even more than chilling out and watching Netflix. Although I love doing that too. If I just did that, it wouldn't really give me all I need. The answer isn't in booking time off or going out with friends. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, maybe you do need a holiday. Maybe you do need some time off. Maybe you need to hang out with friends. And that's, of course, we all need that. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit active in your life, no amount of holiday, no amount of hangout time, no amount of whatever kind of relaxation or leisure time you have is going to give you what you need. And if it did give you what you needed, that just proves you're living actually quite a small life. If if all you need is like two weeks in the sun and then you're good for a year, you need to do more with your life. You need need to be like poured out more. Like that's, that's a small life. And also, if that two-week holiday satisfied every desire, we'd miss out on something exactly what Paul is telling us here. Verse 17, so that you may know him better. If that two-week holiday gives you everything, then you're not going to really know God. That is tragic. You might be like, ah, you know, I could give or take. That's tragic. That would be tragic to go through this life and never know God. Or maybe like know him a little bit. The reason for the spirit of wisdom and revelation is for us to know the Father better, is what Paul is saying here. So there is a knowing one gets from the Holy Spirit that can't be found anywhere else. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom about the Father, lets us understand the Bible so we know about the Father, and we have these words from God, and that's a gift, really, but only God can open up our eyes and our hearts to understand these words. That's a gift, of course. If you aren't yet a believer and you struggle to get what the deal is like with this Bible, because it's really difficult to understand. Well, first off, like welcome to the club. Like we're all there. Um, secondly, you will never understand this unless the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. You have to actually involve your life. 
That's true, really, of all of us. So let's pray the way that Paul's praying, asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give us, other people we love, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let's not be stingy with our prayers. So we need to pray these things for ourselves and for others because without asking God to work, we have no chance of this wisdom and revelation thing. We would like to know the good life. All of us do. Like, but without God at work, we're going to miss it. I don't want to miss it. I don't want my friends to miss it. I don't want the people I love to miss it. That's actually how a living relationship with Jesus can very easily translate into empty, dead religion. As if you just kind of go on as if you know, it's just a box to tick. So, we ask God for wisdom and revelation. Secondly, uh, we ask God to keep the future fixed in our present. We talked a little bit about this last week, um, but we'll get into this a little bit more as well. It's a, it's a big theme. It's basically the theme of hope. This is in verse 18. Uh, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. You may know the hope which is called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. In verse 18, we should ask God to keep the, the future fixed in our present. The eyes of our heart may, might be enlightened. The eyes of our heart, such an interesting phrase. Eyes of our heart, two like body parts smashed into one. That would be a weird, freaky, horror-filled illustration, I think. Um, Maybe that's just where my brain goes. But the, uh, I mean, unlike our actual physical eyes, the eyes of our heart can never close. They're always open. They're always looking around. They're always looking for something. The eyes of our heart are always opened. And Paul is asking for the reality of our future as Christians to break into our present. I've thought about this often when, um, when running in winter, when it's really dark out. It's kind of the metaphor of like, how, do you, how can you like walk when, in the darkness? And so picture yourself on a dark path in the woods. There's no light. The moon's not even out. It starts raining a bit. You start getting a bit soggy. You're not sure where to walk, but you have to walk somewhere because you can't just stand there in the rain like a psychopath. So you shuffle forward. You might, like, you know, you might like fall over a bit. You might stumble. Now, after a while, you've just remembered you, you, the, the whole time you've had a torch in your pocket. The entire time. You didn't even realize that. So you turn it on, you turn on the torch. So silly, you forgot this thing. You turn on the torch, and now you can walk because you can see the path in front of you. That torch light is the future. And as you're walking, your steps in the, in the present change because you see what the future is, even if it's just a few feet in front of you. So if you have that torch light going, you're like, oh wait, that's a tree. I'm not going to bang into that. That's a massive puddle. I'm not going to bang into that. I'll walk here that changes the path that you walk if you get some information about what the future is going to be. As, the, as you light the path ahead, that is the future. So now that the future is illuminated, that changes how and where you walk. Seeing the future path changes how you act in the present. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. It's what he's getting at. For all who follow Jesus, there is a hope he has called each one of us to. All of us. A hope is a positive future orientation. Like there's something good that's going to happen out there. Something good is coming. One thing that's good, Paul mentions, is an inheritance. Not just any inheritance, not even an extraordinary inheritance, a glorious inheritance. I don't know, when was the last time I described something as glorious? I probably had a glorious meal at some point in my life. Like, even better than some rich aunt you've never heard of, died and leaving you millions of pounds, God has made something even better. God has made this whole world will be new. We will be new. He's in the process of making it now. Jesus from the throne in Revelation says, I am right now making all things new. He's asking us to join us with this thing. But there is a future where it will be eventually made new by him. 
There is a hope for all believers that is real and it is coming. Any inheritance that we get in this life normally comes with the death of someone else, right? But when we die, we get the glorious inheritance because he died and rose again. When we die, we get a glorious inheritance because he died and he rose again. Now, it's not just the illuminated path as you're in that dark place. It's this idea of coming home. It's actually like coming home. You might be a bit soggy. You might be a bit wet. Maybe you're a little bit cold, but there's a fire going. And a hot drink awaits you. And there's a comfy chair. And it's the comfy coziness that like British culture is like the best thing in the world for. I remember the first time me and Christina visited uh, London in like 2015 or something like that. It was a cold, rainy day out. We went inside a pub. We're like, this is amazing. Like, Brits know how to do this really well. Like, any, any, any place can do that really well. And most people's homes are super cozy in that way. But that, there, it's like, that is just a small, tiny foretaste of the coziness and, like, the hominess of what it means, of, of what our future is going to look like. That's where we're going. That's a reality. It's not just kind of like a good idea or it's not a nice thing to think of. Like, this is going to happen. To live a forgetful Christian life where we don't take this as a reality in our everyday life is just as silly as going out on a walk in the dark and forgetting that you have a torch in your pocket. And having a hope like this changes how we live our everyday lives. If you knew you were getting an amazing inheritance at age you know, 40 or 60 or whatever, you would, that would probably affect how you change your life. It gets us unstuck from living only in the moment and allows us to see beyond conflict and pain and put suffering really in its right priority because we do suffer for a little while now but it's not always going to be like that. Now, if you have kind of more questions about this or really anything I say in the past or anything, any of these messages or just any questions about Christianity, you can use uh, that link down there and put any kind of question you have. If you want me to get back to you, you'd have to put some kind of contact info um, like your email or something like that. But uh, any questions that you have in there, we'll talk about after the service, if there are any. So, we ask God that we may know his power. Uh, what's another thing that we ask? The um, second to last thing we ask God is that, um, oh, wait, no, that's right. The second to last thing, we may know his power. I've not yet got to this point. I'm already a point ahead of you guys in my brain somewhere. All right, so we're soldiering on, or at least I am. What is God telling us next? Okay, let's look at verse 18 and 19. Uh, that we ask God that we may know his power at work for good in our lives. Especially verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that we have access to through Jesus. I don't know what that means. Have I ever really fully taken advantage of that in my life? I don't know. Probably maybe 1%. And this is another thing that comes when the eyes of our hearts are illuminated. We get to know God's power in our lives at work and now. And this is some kind of like wimpy, wet paper bag kind of power. This is an incomparably great power. You can't even compare it. Incomparable. And what, do you, what should you compare it to? You can't. Like, it's incomparable. It's always at work in your life. Now, it's one thing to know it. It's one, another thing to know it. One thing to, like, read it, to understand it. Another thing to, like, really to know it. If you say you know it, but your life doesn't reflect that knowledge, I don't really believe that you know it. Neither should you. To know is to be like intimately acquainted with. It means you'll do things you wouldn't normally do, except the one who created everything else is now behind you. 
because he's at work in your life. Of course you're going to act differently. You'll talk about Jesus with people. You'll even be get beyond that bridge of awkwardness. You know the bridge of awkwardness when you start getting a relation, in, a, in a conversation and you're like, ooh, this could get really weird really quick and so there's the bridge of awkwardness. I'm going to head this way over here. You know, as soon as you get to that bridge, bridge of awkwardness, you're like, oh, is this, is this cringy? I don't know. Often it's more cringy, especially if you're talking about matters of faith. It's more cringy for yourself than it is for other people, especially if they want to talk about things. But what the, one small thing, this incomparably great, powerful God can do is get you across a bridge of awkwardness to actually talk about faith or actually talk about uh, difficulties in your own life and share that with somebody else or even ask open-ended questions when you see someone struggling with something to see how they're doing in their life. Because the power of God is at work within you and risk is required for a Christian. I mean, do you know his incomparably great power? Like, do you really know it? I don't know, just to be honest, I don't know if I really do every day. He's the king, capital K kind of king, which is supposed to set him apart from all kinds of kings. Look, the leader of the angel armies isn't waiting around for you to buy something on Amazon. Right? He, he, has, he has work to do, and he wants you to join in with it. I'm not saying Amazon's evil, obviously, but if all of our life is just kind of like, if that's what kind of, you know, satiates us. Gosh, man, we need something bigger. We need something bigger because we need the, God's power at work through us. Tell me how your life is different because God is the king. That's what I really want to know. How is your life different if God is the king? If we would live exactly the same way if we found out tomorrow that God is not the king, it kind of tells us, you know, maybe we don't really get it. What would your life look like if the eyes of your heart were enlightened and you knew more about it? You may not know the answer, and that's fine. I don't, know the, I don't know your answer either. That's why we pray. God knows the answer. We talk to him. We ask him. We ask him not to, to make a huge, massive leap into like being the super Christian we think we want to be, but for that really small next step, which might even be just like doing exactly what we're doing here, coming together on a Sunday. That might feel like I need the, you know, this incomparable great power behind me to do that. And that's completely fine. That's great. So we ask God, that we, might, that we may know his power. Like a knowing is like a, a lived-in knowing. Uh, and lastly here, we ask God for wonder to connect with everyday life. For wonder to connect with everyday life. And this is like the last three verses here um, when it talks about the power that we have, the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. This is verse 21. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's a lot of things going on there. A lot of kind of cosmic level things. And I think really what we can take away from verses 20 through 23 is we should ask God for the wonder of serving this great and powerful king to connect with our daily, normal, kind of mundane lives. To have daily, mundane lives that are filled with wonder. That is, really is a good life. That's, that's the good life. And Paul ends this section in complete kind of wonder, talking about things that we know are true, but we don't really kind of maybe understand the, 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 the breadth and the depth of them. The power we have in us is the same as the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's crazy. And also the power that we have in us is the same where Jesus has ascended and now rules the world. 
That's crazy too. We talk about Jesus' resurrection often, you know, rightfully so, and maybe we don't talk about Jesus' ascension as often. Like when he resurrected, he was here on the earth for 40 days, and then he went somewhere. Like what, what was he up to? Well, he went to get the right hand of God. It was like God's like place of power, the place where the, the, um, the throne for the guy who's going to get things done. And that's where Jesus went. And he's also praying for us continually, asking the Father for these things that we're even talking about here. So maybe we're a little bit fuzzy on why the ascension is good news, but Paul, thankfully, will clear, us, clear it up for us here. So Jesus, he's at the right hand of God, and this is beyond anything or anyone else that we think of uh, that might have power. So you think, of what, who is the most powerful person in the world? What would you think of, like, immediately? Jeff Bezos, maybe? Uh, if he's not, you know, orbiting the earth, out in, maybe uh, the prime minister, President of America, I don't know, like, who's the most powerful, who knows, maybe someone we don't even know, your two-year-old probably, depending on, you know, how they're doing. What about institutions? Like, what's the most powerful institution? The government? They're, I mean, that doesn't get much more powerful than that. The uh, military? Maybe something, like, more cosmic, like the idea of, or the, the law of gravity? You can't even think of anything that comes close to Jesus in power. You can't even think of it. Your brain is too small. All of our brains are far too small to even comprehend the power that Jesus has. It's not like there's Jesus and then like, ah, oh, but then there's Boris Johnson. It's like, no, like, it, it's like, far, far, far away. He's far above anything else, be it personal, physical, or spiritual. Nothing in all creation can compare with the mighty strength of our Lord. So that also means, maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself here in my notes here, Anything that you feel like is a weight that is unbearable for you, he is more powerful than that. He is like beyond more powerful than that. Anything you feel like you cannot handle, it could be depression, it could be um, an addiction or whatever the thing might be, Jesus is far more powerful than any of that. So even though sometimes, especially if we're experiencing um, some things that maybe we feel um, like shamed or guilty because you think I ought not to feel this way because I'm a Christian or because I'm a person who has my stuff together or whatever, and then that also means we don't talk about it with other people, please talk about it with God because he's far more powerful to take care of anything in your life. Believe me, anything in your life. It's super small. Here's maybe a, this is like the, the best example I could think of, and I'm sure there's probably better. The sun, okay? This is, we're going to talk about the sun. We're going to nerd out about the sun for a second here because the sun's pretty powerful, I would say, a powerful thing, 93 million miles away, and yet, you know, has always powered life on Earth since forever. Uh, but still, it's overwhelming. It's 93 million miles away. You can't even look at it or it will damage you. Your body will be messed up if you look at this thing that's 93 million miles away. That's powerful. Now, because the vacuum of space, you can't hear the sun, but if there was not the vacuum of space, the sound of the sun for where we are on Earth would sound like Niagara Falls all the time. It'd be like a roaring sound in the background all the time. That's intense. Thankfully, there's a vacuum of space. Uh, and, and, and that's just the energy from the light of the sun. That's 93 miles away. Uh, one scientist said, uh, imagine 10,000 Earths covered in police sirens all screaming. That's the sound of the sun. That's amazing. The sun is big. In our solar system, it accounts for 99% of the mass. That means all the planets, planets are big, right? All those planets make up less than 1% of our solar system's mass because the sun is so big. And it's so, the sun is so powerful, we only need a little bit to sustain life on Earth. We only receive point, I should have put it on the screen. Let me get it right. 
0.000011% of the sun's total energy output, and that's enough for all of life to exist. So it's loud, it's big, it's powerful. And this is just one star among the billions and billions of other stars out there. And the sun isn't the loudest, biggest, or most powerful sun out there either. So do you know how one of the poets in the Psalms describes how God made the stars? He said the work of his fingers, like a flick. All the stars, one flick. That's it. Our God isn't just some nice guy who means well in the sky. He is the powerful king, and he's at work for your good in your life, regardless of where you're at. And this powerful king, this king Jesus, everything is in submission to him. That's what being under his feet means. It may not seem like everything is under submission to him because we're like, oh, everyone does what they want. But that's from our kind of small, faulty point of view. In reality, he's in control over it all, just as he's in control over the sun and all the stars. And in verse 22, Paul brings this big, massive, cosmic reality down to the street. It says, God placed all things under his feet and pointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The universe, the church, made up of all believers, but also our church, Redeemer. Jesus is head of this thing. If we had an org chart, which we don't really need, because it would just be like right now because they're super small. If we had an org chart, Jesus would be at the top. He's who we have to submit to. He's who we surrender. He's the one we're following. We're not following some grand plan or some kind of grand system or you know some guy who's super smart who has all the ideas. I mean, hopefully we have systems and plans and things like that, but we're following Jesus as we do it. And this has massive implications for our relationships with each other. If Jesus is the head of this thing and we're members of a body, a part of a body that attacks another is either a disease or a cancer. Diseases can be cured. Cancers get cut out. That means our little church, our little three-year-old fledgling church, is nothing less than an expression of the fullness of Jesus in Manchester. It's hard to believe, right? We're in a little pub. There's a few of us here. Everyone's away on holiday. But that's really, spiritually, what's happening, that's, that's, that's the reality. And that's why we need these words because we're so easily kind of living by our physical eyes. We need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. And this really changes how we live. This changes what we live for. This changes our diary. It changes our wallets. It changes our hearts. And we, the church, are the fullness of Jesus. He fills everything by his presence. Abraham Kuyper, who's a, um, a Dutch theologian and prime minister and a starter of school, did all sorts of things. And this great quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's nothing outside of his control. Nothing. The only way a holy God can fill an unholy space like ourselves is to make it holy. And you notice right at the end, he says, uh, uh, or in verse 18, sorry, he calls us the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's who we are. You may be like, oh, I'm not me. I'm not, I'm not holy. Yeah, you are. Not because you're great. I mean, I love you guys, but you're not that great because Jesus has already made you whole. Jesus created from unholy people a holy people. In his power as king, he came to earth. In his power as king, he walked in our shoes. We laughed, but he was laughed at by his own creation that he came to save. And in his power as king, he wasn't power hungry. He served. He lowered himself. In his power as king, he let us humiliate him, torture him, 
publicly crucify him, kill him. In his power as king, he didn't stave it dead, but brought himself to life. And Jesus, being man and God, was able to have his death become ours and his life become ours. So everything we've done that holds us back from God, Jesus has put it all to death and filled us with himself. And all the ways we miss out on him because we get sidetracked and we do all sorts of things and we get things messed up, he has put all those things ultimately to death and our true selves are living out of the reality of what Jesus has already done in our hearts. Now the night before Jesus died, he had a meal with his friends called the Last Supper. He asked his friends to remember him by reenacting that moment over and over again, which is why we continue to do this today. That's what we do together as we are the body of Christ, as we are the fullness of him, are experiencing the fullness of him. And this is what we do together. It's a symbol really of of many things. One of them is of renewal because Christ died precisely because we don't do all the things we talked about today. Everything I talked about today, none of us have all those boxes ticked, like none of us do. We don't seek him above all else. We have issues with people that we don't forgive. We serve ourselves instead of him. But every day with Jesus is an opportunity to be renewed in the way that we ought to live. And as Jesus forgives us, he also calls us to more. He's patient, but he won't be taken advantage of either. He wants us to grow. Now, there are probably things that have come up during this message that you need to talk to God about. Uh, I know I loads of things for myself. Uh, Some things you ought not to be doing, some things you ought to be doing. This right now, this time, this time of renewal is an opportunity to bring ourselves to the God that loves us beyond all things. So if you follow Jesus, we, really, we ask that you will join in with us. Uh, you don't need to be a member of our church. You should be a member of a church somewhere. Uh, but, and also, if you don't follow Jesus, this is not for you yet. We don't want you doing some kind of empty religious ritual. This is only for people who really know Jesus. Um, and you can ask, it, it, you can ask um, God to help you understand what it means to know him. Also, if it is something that uh, you haven't yet followed Jesus and you do want to take that first step, you, this is a great opportunity for that. So join in with us and start your life of faith today. But what we have here, we're going to um, take these as Michael and Hannah lead us in singing. Uh, the bread is a symbol of Jesus' body and the cup is a symbol of Jesus' blood. He died for his church, the very church that Paul talks about here, and he rose again for his church, and he reigns in power now for his church. And so as we take, we should take it with a sense of joy and gratitude, but also humility, knowing that we're not good enough and never will be, which is a good thing because it means we, have, we need more of God in our life. But also to ask the question of God, like, where, how do you want me to use this life? You are the powerful king. How, what are ways of your power in my life that I'm kind of like taking for granted or not taking advantage of? The only way a holy God can fill an unholy space is to make it holy, and that's exactly what he's done in our hearts. That's what it means to be part of the church and what he's doing in our city. So let's pray to the king for wisdom, for revelation, for a real hope that we may know his power and for our lives to be filled with wonder. <laughs> Let me pray.